You are listening to an audio sermon of First Baptist Church of Arlington, Washington. Our mission is to know Jesus and make Him known. Thank you for joining us. Here is today's message. Well, at this time, I invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. The former French Prime Minister, Georges Clemenceau, fought many duels with various rivals. On one occasion, he surprised his second by asking the attendant at a Paris railroad station for a one-way ticket to the duel. Isn't that a little pessimistic, asked the second? Not at all, Clemenceau replied. I always use my opponent's return ticket for the way home. In a way, we marvel at such displays of confidence. When someone is so sure that they're going to win, they appear to live by a a different set of rules that transcend the rest of us. Because confidence is a good thing. It sets men and women apart. However, the trick is knowing what to have confidence in. If we rely on the wrong means to achieve our goals, it shouldn't surprise us when we achieve the wrong results. The same can be said for many areas of the Christian life, but even more so when we come to answer that most important question of all. How can I be right with God? What must I do to be right with God? In Philippians 3, Paul answers that question in a very personal and pastoral way. He tells us what his life was like before he was saved, what happened at his conversion, and what his life is like now as he presses on towards the goal. You put all those elements together, and what you have is a testimony. For 14 verses here in Philippians chapter 3, we have the personal testimony of Paul. Philippians 3 gives us the internal reality of what happened spiritually when Paul became a Christian. Acts 9, Acts 22, and Acts 26, they provide the events, the externals, what happened on the outside as Paul was converted to saving faith. But what happened on the inside? Here in Philippians 3, we have the unique opportunity of of experiencing Paul as he shares himself, as he opens up his chest and reveals what happened at his conversion. And this is important because there is only one way to salvation and only one right answer to the question, what must I do to be right with God? So Paul provides his experience as an example of what true conversion looks like. With that in mind, please follow along as I read the first nine verses of chapter three before we zero in on verses three through seven. He says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, also, if anyone else 
thinks that he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. What we have here is a spiritual profit and loss statement. Now, my wife is currently in Indiana helping her parents with a garage sale, so if she's not here this morning, even though there's a three-hour time difference, I would be surprised if she were live-streaming this service. So my wife is going to miss out this morning because she is a CPA. Some of you know that. She, uh, she has a history in auditing and CPA work. I probably should have asked her for help before preparing this message or while I was preparing it. But either way, that's what we have here, a spiritual profit and loss statement. This is Paul's list of gains and losses where he takes into account a massive transaction that occurs at salvation. Notice the language that he uses here in verses 7 and 8. The words count and loss appear three times each. And we see the word gain at the end of verse 8. These are business terms, accounting terms. He says, whatever I once had in my profit column, those things have been moved over into my loss column, all for the sake of gaining Christ. In fact, he goes so far as to say, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, or scubalon, meaning waste, excrement, manure. He doesn't say good things. He, he doesn't look back on his past and think of all those things that he once thought would earn him a good place with God. He doesn't look back on those good things and say, you know, that good stuff that I used to rely on to secure my salvation, those things have little value when it comes to Christ or, or when they're compared to Christ. No, he says, everything that I bring to the table, it's all completely worthless. In fact, it's worse than worthless. It's manure. Everything, everything that I once had confidence in, that I now consider garbage for the sake of Christ, all of those things, none of them are worth anything. They aren't worth a hill of beans like we would say back home. Christ is my only treasure. That's how the Christian thinks. That's how we view ourselves and the world. And if you don't view the world and yourself like that, then friends, you are not a Christian. And I can say that with confidence because that is the whole point of our text this morning. If Christ has truly become our sole source of life, then we will view the world this way. Paul has shown us in verse 2 what to look out for regarding those who are religious but lost. They might sign the doctrinal statement, but 
by adding even just the smallest requirement to the gospel of grace, the gospel that is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. By adding just the smallest smidge to that gospel, they completely miss the mark and propagate a lie that damns people to hell. So Paul uses strong language here to warn us about them, and he tells us to reject their doctrine. In the verses that follow, he then gets more specific with three overall big-picture traps or snares that the true believer must reject if he has been truly born again. These are the common pitfalls for those who think that they're saved, but in reality, their faith is not found in Christ alone. If you want to know whether or not you have been justified before God, here are some of the aspects of life that every justified sinner, without exception, must cast off and throw away. First of all, justified sinners reject their fleshly reliance. Fleshly reliance. Look at verse 3. He says, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. No confidence. None whatsoever. When Paul says we are the circumcision, he's saying we are the true Christians. We see that contrast between verses 2 and 3. In verse 2, we have the dogs. We have the evildoers, the mutilators. Those that are not saved, those religious people who are lost. And then in verse 3, we have the righteous. The righteous. These are the true Christians. Unlike the Judaizers and those who rely on the gospel of Christ plus something else, we worship Christ, we delight in Christ, and we depend on Christ. That's verse 3. Our confidence, our conviction, our certainty of salvation is found nowhere else but right here in Christ alone. Look at verse 4. He says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. Now, is he saying that he has confidence or he has a reason to have confidence in the flesh and so now he's changing his position? No way. Meganoito, may it never be. He goes on to say, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Paul says, listen here, little man. You think, you think that you're good enough to earn some kind of favor with God. You're not even close. If anyone is close, I'm close. Let me show you what close looks like. That's what he's saying here, but he's not being braggy about it or arrogant. He's just pointing out that if anybody did have the right to brag, if anybody could possibly say, hey, I am as close as anyone could possibly get, he would point to himself first. Because Paul has a very impressive resume. He's just pointing out the fact that he had it all. He had it all. And he has already made his position on the matter clear that there is no room for confidence in the flesh. So so Paul isn't flip-flopping between views. He's just highlighting the absurdity of fleshly reliance. Bringing us quickly into the second rejection. Not only do we deny our fleshly reliance, but we also, as justified sinners, we reject our fleshly resume. Fleshly resume. Verses 5 and 6 offer a list of religious assets that Paul now considers spiritual deficits. He provides six fo- or seven false hopes for salvation, or seven counterfeit 
confidences. Unfortunately, these, these counterfeits, these things that people put their confidence in, they are common foundations for religious people to rely on to their destruction. They think surely God will accept them because they have a few of these lines on their spiritual resume, not realizing that, that what they have is powerless, it's worthless, that these confidences really contain nothing. They're waste. They're excrement. So what are these seven false assurances for gaining a right standing before God? First of all, Paul says salvation is not the result of your rituals. Not the result of your rituals. The first line on Paul's fleshly resume says, circumcised on the eighth day. That is exactly what the Judaizers wanted the Philippians to do. Remember, the Judaizers would tell recently converted Gentile believers that they needed to obey the Old Testament law in order to be saved. That yes, they can accept Jesus as their Messiah, as that perfect sacrifice for their sins on the cross. Yes, you can believe that He lived a perfect life, that He came to this earth and He lived and He died for the sake of sinners. But, but, that's not the whole story. That's not the whole picture, and you need to go beyond that. You need to add something to it. You need to also obey the law of Moses. So turn with me to Genesis, and we are going to look in the Old Testament. I'm not saying, I'm just saying that's what the Judaizers would say, so don't turn in Genesis. But that's what they would do. They would say, turn in your Bibles to the Old Testament and follow along as we walk through the Scriptures, as we walk through the Torah, as we walk through the history and the prophets. Follow along and see that this is what God requires of you, O Christian. You got to be a Jewish Christian. You got to fall in line with what God's Word says here. I mean, it sounded good, but there's one problem with that. When you add anything to the gospel of grace, it is no longer grace, and it is no longer the gospel. They would tell them, you have to be circumcised. You have to watch what you eat. You have to obey the rules. You have to follow the law. Then and only then will the blood of Christ really be applied to your life. You see, they were taking the cross and arguing that justification or a right standing before God was only possible if you have faith in Christ and you obey the Old Testament law. Essentially, they were saying your faith alone is not enough. It's faith plus circumcision, faith plus ceremony, faith plus covenant obedience. They affirmed every other doctrine, but they added this requirement to salvation. And when you do that, you are no longer living by the same gospel. Paul has already argued against that in verses 2 and 3. So it's not surprising to see him begin his list with this ritualistic event of circumcision. But he takes it a step further. He says, not only was I circumcised, I was circumcised on the eighth day. As a newborn baby, according to the law of Moses, he wasn't like Ishmael, who was circumcised as a teenager. He wasn't like that second generation in the wilderness who were all circumcised after crossing the Jordan before conquering Jericho. Have you ever thought about that, by the way? What a terrible battle strategy. Here you cross a river, it closes up behind you, there's the enemy in eyesight in front of you, giant walls, and what does the Lord tell you to do? Wait, circumcise all the guys. What a terrible battle strategy. And yet, 
that's how important obedience is to the Lord. Interesting. Either way, this is not Paul. This is not Saul as he was born. He, he, he wasn't circumcised later in life like some Jewish proselyte who had joined their ranks. No, Paul, his circumcision went all the way back to the beginning. He was a faithful Jew. And he says, there was a time when I looked at my Jewish circumcision as a sign of my acceptance before God. Sadly, today's churches are full of people who do the exact same thing. Maybe not with circumcision, but with all other kinds of rituals and events. If you ask most believers today that question, it's a very simple question. Are you a Christian? Just go up to someone in a church and ask them that. Are you a Christian? The sort of answers that we often hear are, of course I am. When I was a kid, I was baptized into the church. Or, of course I am. I once responded to an altar call, or I made a decision, or I said a prayer, or I wrote that date down on the inside of my Bible. These folks look back at a a ritual or an event, and they assume that that somehow confirms their salvation. But none of those things answer the question, are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? Because it doesn't really matter what you did. It matters where you are. Are you presently serving Christ? Are you presently trusting in Him for salvation? Listen, this is one of the most effective tools Satan has for keeping people in the dark. Because if you can trust in a past event rather than in Christ Himself today, you will tune out when salvation is preached from the pulpit. You'll think to yourself, Oh, he's talking to unbelievers. Wake me up when he gets to something a little less basic. But friend, no ritual or event can replace a living, breathing, vibrant, personal, intimate relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope none of you, none of you stand before the Lord one day saying, but Lord, what about that time at church camp? What about that time I said a prayer? What about that time that I did this or I did that? Or my parents, even though I don't remember it, they told me that when I was five years old, I made this decision. What about that prayer? I was so sincere in that moment. I hope none of you say that to him, only to hear him say, depart from me, because we don't know each other. Make no mistake, no one has ever been saved by a ritual And anyone who puts their confidence in a ritual or a past event, that person has put their confidence in the flesh. And they are outside of Christ. That's the first false assurance of this fleshly resume. Number two, salvation is not the result of your race. Your race. He says of the people of Israel, you know, being a Jew has benefits. Most certainly does. And those benefits are listed for us in Romans 9, verses 4 and 5, where Paul says, They are Israelites, and to them belong. Notice he says present tense, and here's the list. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, the Messiah, 
who is God over all. Blessed forever. Amen. Notice Paul doesn't list these benefits in the past tense, as if any of that has changed now that the church has arrived. Instead, he says, here is a present list of ongoing privileges they have. Unfortunately, these same privileges make for excellent stumbling blocks when it comes to the gospel of grace. For the Jew, this list can easily become a source of confidence. Remember when John the Baptist started preaching to the Jews that were coming to him to be baptized. You remember what he said to them? He didn't say, oh, I'm so glad you came. Here's, here, grab a coffee and, and a free book. He didn't try to make them feel more welcomed there at the river. Instead, he says, he just goes right to the point, and he starts calling them to repentance. He says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. If this wasn't a common thing for the Jews to fall back on, John wouldn't have addressed it. They were used to saying this. This is the way they thought. They would think to themselves, well, I'm special. Why? Because I'm a Jew. Because I am one of God's chosen people. Because I am a son or a daughter of Abraham. And John says, what does that matter? Before you go saying, I don't have to repent, I don't have to change, I don't have to submit to the lordship of Christ, or, or in this case, I don't have to prepare my heart to receive him in faith, knowing that he's on his way and has now come. Don't say that to yourself simply because of your race, simply because you happen to be a Jew, because you happen to be within the, the covenant community of faith. Don't say that, because God is able to make rocks children of Abraham, if that's what he so wishes. But it was easy here for a Jew to place their confidence in their ethnic identity. We see the same thing happen with Jesus in John 8. Listen to this. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, notice these are Jews that believe in him. He says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. But listen to their response. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Here are Jews that believe in Jesus, but when he tells them what to do, it becomes clear that their confidence is not in him, their confidence is in the flesh. You see, race, nationality, and ethnic background have nothing to do with your standing before God. Absolutely nothing. Unfortunately, today there are many who believe that being an American and being a Christian are somehow related. I was speaking to a friend on the phone the other day. He said that he went overseas and, and he, had, he was traveling with some other folks and, and he was talking to someone and, and, and the person they were talking to said, hey, are you a Christian? And the person just automatically fired back, well, of course I'm a Christian. I'm an American. Friend, those things have nothing to do with each other. As if having the words in God we trust on the paper money we don't even use anymore will, will somehow earn us points with the God of the Bible. It doesn't. Others call themselves Christians simply because they grew up in a Christian home. And just a few weeks ago, my five-year-old told me that she is a Christian. Why? Why? Because that's what mom and dad are. 
It's cute, it's sweet, but my precious little girl couldn't be more wrong. Some people never outgrow that error, though, and they think that they're saved just because of the way they were raised. But in truth, they're just as lost as a kid who grew up Muslim, or that nice young man who shows up at your doorstep wearing a tie. Listen, if you think that you're a Christian because you grew up in a so-called Christian home or a so-called Christian nation, then your confidence is still in the flesh. And you are still hopelessly lost in your sins. That's number two. Number three, salvation is not the result of your rank. Your rank. He says, of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, to us Gentiles, we're tempted to look at that and say, big deal. Who cares? Especially today when nobody knows which tribe they belong to. But back then, to say, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, that was a big deal. For several reasons. First of all, their territory included the capital of Jerusalem, as well as the temple. So they had prime real estate. Also, Israel's first king, King Saul, was a Benjamite. It's likely that's where Paul's Jewish name Saul came from. His parents, being the devout Jews that they were, probably named him after King Saul. Another reason why the tribe of Benjamin was a big deal is because they were considered a part of the faithful few in Israel's history. When Solomon's son, Rehoboam, made a series of bad choices and the kingdom split, ten tribes deserted to the north, while two tribes remained true to the line of David in the south. The northern tribes made Jeroboam their king. And one of the first things that guy did was institute idol worship in the land. The two faithful tribes to the south Those tribes were Judah and Benjamin. That's not to say that the Benjamins were perfect. They certainly have their share of sordid Old Testament history. Just read the book of Judges. Do it it sometime when your kids are not around. But they were an elite tribe, and they were highly respected in Jewish circles. For Paul to say that these are my people, this is my tribe, It's a big deal to those who put stock in where you come from. Even the fact that Paul knows which tribe he belongs to, even that says something about the type of family that Paul came from. At a time when most Jews had already lost track of their heritage, Paul's family was one of the few, the the proud, those that held on to their legacy. They held on to their records, and with each generation, they passed on their history of being one of the faithful tribes, one of the better tribes, one of the elite tribes, the tribe of Benjamin. Paul says, I know who I am. I know where I come from. And in the pecking order of rank and respect, I come from the inner circle of the inner circle. And guess what? That is all manure compared to Christ. It's all manure just, just a little while ago, half hour, 45 minutes ago, we, we dedicated some babies and, and their families. We, we, we had a time of dedication. We celebrated that. Where we witnessed several parents promise to provide their children with a spiritual heritage. Now, that's a wonderful commitment. Because it places their children in a prime position to be transformed by the power of the gospel. But as parents and as those who put no confidence in the flesh, we recognize that such a blessing can become a liability 
if we begin to trust in our spiritual heritage for safety. Listen, being born into the right family never saved anyone. Never saved anyone. Neither does surrounding yourself with the right people or bettering yourself with the right practices. Honestly, God doesn't care. He doesn't care about your rank. He doesn't care if you're a famous pastor or the son of a famous pastor. You can still be lost. You can still be lost in any station of life. In the end, rank has nothing to do with your salvation. That's number three. Additionally, salvation is not the result of your rearing. Rearing. He says, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Now, in the first century, the Jews were scattered all over the Greco-Roman world. And many of them succumbed to Alexander the Great's goal of Hellenizing all of the known people groups. Much like today, it wasn't popular to stand out. It was much easier to blend in. So the majority were happy to give up their culture and a more Greek way of life. However, those that held on, those that retained their heritage, were often referred to as Hebrews. A Hebrew of Hebrews was someone who held on to their religious traditions. And they held on with both hands. They worked hard. They held on tightly. Paul, as you know, was born in Tarsus, which is found in modern-day Turkey. And from birth, he was surrounded by Greeks. He spoke Greek. He wrote Greek. He was a full-blown Roman citizen. But Acts 22.3 gives us a little more insight into his background. There he says, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus, in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, that is Jerusalem, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. So while he was born in Tarsus, he was raised in Jerusalem. His parents were so determined for him to retain his culture, they sent him away as a boy to live in Jerusalem. And as he grew older, he studied under Gamaliel, who was widely respected. This man was the grandson of the, of the founder of the most prestigious rabbinical school of the day. There were two primary pharisaical schools, and this man is the grandson of one of its founders. He also acted as the president of the Sanhedrin during three Roman emperors. This guy was a big deal. You see, Paul wasn't just a Jew. Paul was a super Jew. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He had the best ritual, race, rank, and rearing. He was the guy that everybody wanted to be. Every Judaizer, they would just drool at the thought of Paul's previous life. Because when it came to credentials, this man had it all. He had the language, the history, the heritage, the education, the location, the connections. His religious resume was incredibly impressive. And yet Paul looks at all of that, and what does he call it? Manure. Manure. Why? Because you can spend your entire life living a religious life and still die without Christ. Again, churches are full of folks who attend regularly, tithe regularly, serve regularly, because that's how they were raised. That's what they do. And they think that by being a Christian of Christians, they will somehow earn favor with God. 
So Paul reminds us that even the best tradition is not enough in and of itself to save anyone. It's not enough. Again, these are all good things. Notice that these are not bad things. But when they are compared to Christ, that's when they turn into dung. When we look to these things for salvation, when we put stock in them in any way, even to the smallest degree, that's when we find ourselves in danger. But he doesn't stop there. Number five, salvation is not the result of your religiosity. Your religiosity. He says, as to the law of Pharisee. Pharisee. When we think of the Pharisees, our minds automatically turn towards Jesus' interaction with them. And ten times out of ten, we assume the worst about these men, right? Nobody looks up to a Pharisee nowadays. But to really grasp what Paul is trying to say here and what his point is, we need to take it a step or two back into the first century. Because in that culture, the Pharisees were an elite religious group. They were, they were the hardcore conservatives. When I was a kid growing up, I had a friend who lived down the road. Her name was Robin. We used to ride our bikes together, and every once in a while I would have dinner at her house. I loved it when I had that opportunity because her family was interesting. I mean, they were far from boring. I remember they would cook dishes from all over the world. The first time as a kid, I remember having chocolate cake with jalapeno peppers baked inside of it. So many interesting dishes. Both of her parents were professors. I think one of her sisters was married in Spain while the other one is smuggling Bibles in China. Uh, Of course, they're all multilingual and their IQs are off the charts. Just a really interesting, fun family. I remember one time trying to watch the Three Amigos with her and I couldn't because her and her dad just kept making fun of me in Spanish the entire time. That's the, those are the kinds of memories I have of this family. It's no wonder that she went on to become my class's valedictorian. And the last I heard, she was ranked within the top 10 of our country's limited number of medical evacuation chopper pilots. You know, we aren't surprised when exceptional people like that rise to the top and carve a place for themselves in the higher echelons of, a, of an elite group In first century Judaism, that's exactly who the Pharisees were. According to Josephus, there were only about 6,000 of them at the time of Christ. You had to prove your loyalty to the Word of God and your devotion to the law of God before joining their ranks. Today, we may not have an elite group of super-Christians, but we do have the same destructive tendency they had to rely on a religious activity. Like the Pharisees, so many well-intended Christians, we spin our wheels, exhaust ourselves in the pursuit of holiness on the outside without a real change of heart on the inside. To steal Jesus' illustration, they spend so much time cleaning the outside of the cup while the inside of the cup is still dirty and unusable. Friend, you can become the most religious person on the planet You can do everything right. You can obey this book better than anyone else. But if you rely on anything, anything, even good things, even obedience to God's word, if you rely on anything other than Jesus' righteousness alone for your salvation, guess what? Your confidence is still in the flesh. And you are trusting something 
other than the gospel of grace. That's number five. Number six, salvation is not the result of your resolve. Your resolve. He says, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. This word zeal, it simply means an intense positive interest or to pursue and chase after. This is a word that you'll find in historical documents outside of the Bible that is used often to refer to chasing after an army or to pursue in battle. Paul says, when I believed the Christians were the heretics, when I believed they were wrong, that they were going against God's word, I pursued them. I chased after them relentlessly. You remember from the book of Acts that Paul was there when Stephen was murdered. He was commissioned by the higher-ups and volunteered his services to go out and to hunt down Christians, all of those so-called Jewish apostates, those who had abandoned the true faith for this new cult called the Way, later to be called Christianity. Listen to what he tells Agrippa in Acts 26, verses 9 through 11. He says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but they were put to death. When they were put to death, I cast my vote against them like he did with Stephen. And I punished them often in all the synagogues, and I tried to make them blaspheme. Picture that. The Apostle Paul, before his conversion, trying hard to make Christians blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them, even to foreign cities. We talk about Sunday Christians, those that are not fully committed to the cause of Christ. Paul was anything but a Sabbath Jew. He was a committed man. He resolved to please his God and defend the Scriptures with unbridled passion and sincerity. But friends, he was still wrong. He was still wrong. Likewise, there are many people who mean well, and they act on their misguided beliefs passionately, thinking surely God will appreciate all of the hard work, the sacrifices, the hard commitments that I have made. Surely my desire and drive for His acceptance will be enough for Him to give it to me. Meanwhile, the Apostle Paul, he looks at that and he just shakes his head and he says, what a waste. What a waste. That's number six. Salvation is not the result of your rituals, race, rank, rearing, religiosity, or resolve. And then finally, salvation is not the result of your righteousness. Your righteousness. He says, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Blameless. We've looked at that word before. In chapter 2, verse 15, Paul is not claiming to have lived a sinless life. He simply means that others would look at his life and they wouldn't find something to blame. He lived a blameless life on the outside. He lived a life that that was imitatable, a life that others would look at and would want to be like. He was a straight arrow if there ever was one. He was a good man, a moral man, a man of character. 
He was a model citizen, a guiltless leader, a true believer. And yet this world is full of upright folks just like him who think that their good deeds are going to somehow make up for the bad when they stand before God. In a couple of weeks, we'll look at verse 9 in depth. And we'll see just how far our righteousness falls short of God's righteous standard. But for now, I hope that it's obvious. I hope that it's obvious that, that a full resume of good spiritual things, it's all manure. It's all worthless when it comes to your salvation. Now granted, these things, they're, they're good things in other ways, in other aspects, but not when it comes to your standing before God. These things add nothing to your justification. And none of these things justify you. The true believer must throw these things away, especially when they come to the Lord for salvation. The true believer throws away their fleshly reliance and fleshly resume because these are the dangers that pull us away from the gospel. And then finally, number three, Justified sinners reject their fleshly revenue. Fleshly revenue. Look at verse 7. He says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Paul says, My profits have become losses, and my assets have become liabilities. He says, I once thought my flesh had value. Boy, was I wrong. It was Jim Elliot who famously said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. All that work, all that effort, all that reliance, resume, and revenue amounts to nothing when compared to gaining Christ. Nothing. So I have to ask, what are you trusting in for salvation? What are you holding on to what will you hold up to the Lord one day and say, here you go, this should be enough to get me in? Are you willing to throw it away, to trash it all, to trash everything for the sake of gaining Christ? Before we close, I will have you turn in one passage. Some of you are looking at me like, why hasn't he had us turn anywhere in our Bible yet? Well, let's do that here before we close. Matthew 7. Please turn with me there to Matthew chapter 7. Here, Jesus is wrapping up his Sermon on the Mount that started in chapter 5. And you will remember that there in chapter 5, when he began this message, his opening words to his introduction begin with, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He says, Blessed are those who recognize that they have nothing to offer God those with an empty profit column who are not relying on their achievements or their experiences to affect their salvation. That's how he begins his introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. And here's how he begins his conclusion. In chapter 7, starting in verse 21, look at what he says. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So we're told right out of the gate here that a day will come when many will come to him 
out of familiarity. And they will say, Lord, Lord, you know me. I know you. It's me. Let me into the kingdom of heaven. They'll think that they're good to go when they really aren't. And Jesus says, not everyone who believes that they're saved will be allowed to enter. It's the doers, the ones that do the will of the Father. They are the ones who get in. Look at what he then says in verse 22. He says, on that day, many will say to me. And then here comes the prophet column, their credentials. It's the same sort of list that Paul gives in Philippians 3, only shorter. They say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Notice that every single one of these activities is religious. They prophesy or they preach in the name of Jesus. They cast out demons in the name of Jesus. They do mighty works in the name of Jesus. These are good Christian people. Surely if anyone deserves to have the doors flung open wide for all their efforts, for them to be rewarded for them, it is these folks right here, this group. But look at what Jesus says next. He says the most terrifying thing in all of Scripture. It's worth underlining. It should send a chill down all of our spines. He says, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. What's the key to understanding this verse? It's those four little words, I never knew you. Now, what does that mean, I never knew you? Obviously, Jesus knows everybody. He's omnipotent. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere at the same time. He, he sees it all. He knows it all. He, he knows our attitudes and our actions, the number of days that we have, the number of hairs on our heads. What do you mean, I never knew you? What is he saying here? Well, all throughout the Bible, this word know, it's used to describe intimacy on various levels. To know someone is to have a very close, personal, intimate relationship with them. We're told that Joseph didn't know Mary until after Jesus was born. Did he know who she was? Of course he did. It wasn't a blind marriage. But he didn't know her in the deep, personal way that a husband should know his wife. So what is Jesus saying when he says, I never knew you? He's saying that that relationship that you and I should have, we don't have it. That deepest level of the most personal connection I know that you think that we have, we don't. Think about it. Could there be anything worse than that? To live your entire life as a religious person, certain that all your hard work and all of that spiritual equity would one day pay off, only to stand before Jesus and hear him say, get out of my sight. He's warned us here in Matthew 7 that those who rely on their profit column to, to enter the kingdom of heaven, those folks will not make it. Only those who have already surrendered their life to him, those who have an obedient and intimate relationship with him, those who know him and are known by him. Friend, if you do not have such a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, then it doesn't matter it doesn't matter where you come from, what you do, or how sincere you are. You are lost. You are lost today. And one day you will hear these chilling words, I never knew you. 
unless, unless you come to Jesus. Unless you repent of your sin. Unless you come to know this Savior. Next week, we're going to look at two different types of righteousness and and we'll see what it takes to truly be saved. But don't wait until then. Don't wait until then to pursue a, a living relationship with this Jesus. If there is any doubt in your mind, get to know him this week. Learn to love him because he loves those who belong to him. Spend time getting to know him through his word. And then put what you learn into action. Do what he says, not to be saved, but because he is the God who saves. And preach the gospel. Preach the gospel to yourself every day until it sticks. And then keep on preaching it. Remind yourself that your resume will not get you the position with God. It doesn't matter how impressive it is. You are not qualified and you never will be. Unless, unless you are trusting completely in the finished work of a perfect sacrifice. Then and only then will you have all that you need and more to live the confident Christian life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we look at such texts, and Lord, I pray that they would weigh heavy on us. Lord, that if there is anything in my life or in the lives of anyone here, anything at all that we rely upon other than the perfect sacrifice, the perfect righteousness of your Son, then Lord, I pray that you would expose that, that you would root it out. Lord, that we would be faithful to confess that sin before you, to repent of it, and to trust you fully. Lord, we know that our righteousness is filthy. Even the best of us fall so infinitely short of the righteousness that is found in Christ alone. Lord, where else will we turn? Where else will we put our faith and our trust? But in that sacrifice, that perfect, active obedience of Jesus Christ as he lived a perfect life, as he followed your law perfectly and never sinned, not once, for his entire life here on the earth as he walked among us only to die a criminal's death that he didn't deserve, so that we who put our faith in him and trust in him for our salvation, we can find it as you exchange our ugly, filthy righteousness for his perfect righteousness. Lord, I pray that that would be true for every person here. I pray that we would put no confidence in the flesh, even the good things that we see our flesh do and produce and the things that, that we turn to and we look at and we put so much pride and confidence in, Lord, I pray that we would see it as Paul, that it would all be manure. Lord, that, that we would recognize that these things have no value, none whatsoever, when it comes to a right standing with you. Lord, thank you for grace. Thank you for mercy. Thank you for your love. Thank you for doing all of these things for us because we are incapable of doing them for ourselves. Thank you for not just providing the way or making the way, but for being the way. We love you. And we thank you and we give you praise and we give you glory for these wonderful gifts that you have given us in your precious and your holy name. Amen.